is not something where you can kind of scatter and diversify across the portfolio and assume that everyone's going to win. I'd say that the driving force of space really is the people. It definitely is a long-term kind of play, right? Where it's a structural grower, you really are playing for something that can become almost commercial arrow-like over a 10 to 20 year period. Welcome back to Opto Sessions. Today, I'm speaking to Colin Canfield, Investor Relations Lead at Rocket Lab. Welcome, Colin. Hey, Aiden. How's it going? Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Good. Um, So uh, I think the structure for today's interview will be to cover kind of the more general vision of Rocket Lab to get an understanding of what you do fundamentally as a business. We'll explore the opportunity uh, that potentially that business offers to retail investors uh, and then we'll go through latest earnings results and what you're what you're guiding for or what you're expecting for the next quarter. Um, but to start, I, th- I thought we'd start with kind of a an intro question, and that is for anyone familiar with Rocket Lab as a company, what do you do? Give us the elevator pitch. Yeah, sure. So first things first, just got to knock down um, kind of the legal statement stuff. So um, forward-looking statements, today's discussion may contain forward-looking statements. All statements are based on Rocket Lab's current expectations and beliefs and may involve risks and uncertainties, which are beyond Rocket Lab's control. Actual results may differ from those that are expressed in today's statements, and factors could cause actual future events to differ materially from the forward-looking statements in today's discussion. So with that out of the way, um, the quick pitch on kind of what Rocket Lab does is that we do launch services and space systems, right? With, with roughly, in a kind of normalized environment, one-third of our revenue coming from the launch side of the house um, and two-thirds of it coming from space systems with space systems being not just you know the subcomponents that we've acquired solar reaction wheels star trackers and software um, but as well as full-scale satellite manufacturing and, and we're really proud of kind of you know where we've taken that business over the last two years and where we can take it going forward yeah fantastic okay well i think that gives us a good overview of rocket lab as a business let's get into the holistic vision of the company i think your ceo peter beck said we go to space to improve life on earth so you talk us through the ways the space industry and more importantly rocket lab are addressing critical issues here on here on earth sure sure yeah so, so space industry in general um all the kind of key technologies that enable you know all the trends that people have really focused in on mobility communications um, intelligence, those are all enabled by the satellite technologies that we deploy in space. Things like GPS, uh, things like, you know, kind of weather monitoring satellites, those, those are all driven by space technologies. And if you think about kind of what those enable, um, you know, communication is, is so increasingly important in terms of kind of the architectures as we think about future economy growth, right? Where a lot of the growth and jobs will probably come from digital services and the like. And so getting people connectivity is, is definitely paramount for that. If you think about kind of some of the other projects that Rocket Lab is working on, in addition to um, satellite communications and intelligence work, um, there, there's also kind of, you know, some of the other passion projects that we do, um, Right, things like Earth uh, or beyond Earth exploration, right, which is which has always been a key enabler of the technologies that we typically don't see um, that come to market over time. Um, and then there's also you know some of the other stuff that we're working on with respect to like our Varda capsule, right, where in space manufacturing can be utilized to deliver better effects for pharmaceuticals. With the first Varda capsule being a great example of that, focusing on um, HIV related drugs. 
Yeah, fantastic. So there's a broad range of applications that Rocket Labs technology is addressing. So we'll get into some of those in more detail in a second. Um, but first, I want to address kind of the the differentiation you offer the market, the industry, and therefore investors as well. I saw a Bloomberg Business Week cover a little while ago uh, that pictured a Rocket Lab rocket next to the title, not Elon's rocket, which I think was an interesting way of positioning your your business. A lot of people will have heard of SpaceX just due to, you know, Elon Musk's notoriety, I suppose. But what what differentiates Rocket Lab from SpaceX? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if you think about kind of where we're positioned today and and what we do today, a lot of the business that we work on is related to um, manufacturing satellites and subsystems for those satellites for other customers rather than putting our own um, assets up into space. I'd say that within the kind of launch domain and and talking to the the not Elon's rocket headline, um, we we focus typically on kind of the small launch services today, right? The Electron is, is definitely the leader in that market. And if you think about, um, you know, where our investments are focused on in the future, a lot of our investment is going into the, the medium launch domain. So specifically the Neutron platform, which is designed to compete with the Falcon 9. And as SpaceX kind of pushes, you know, higher up the curve into the super heavy domain, um, you know, afforded that by a lot of their, I'd say, capital supply and their fundraising environment and, and kind of how their model works, we're a little bit more bootstrapped. Right. So, so focusing on what we can achieve is, is definitely related to that, that medium class domain. And we, and we think that once Neutron comes to market, it'll be a really competitive, uh, vehicle class just on based on kind of the pricing, the capacity and, and kind of how we think about reusability for, for the future. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. We'll dig into Neutron and reusability overall later on as well. Um, I want to touch on some recent news because I think, again, it addressed the overall sort of vision and some of the longer term prospects and aspirations that Rocket Lab hold. The the company recently leased Lockheed Martin's 113,000 square foot former vertical launch building in Maryland near uh, Baltimore. Uh, and Peter, your CEO, described this as part of a broader vertical integration strategy. So, yeah, but I've got a couple of questions on that. But before I ask those, perhaps you can just explain what the overall vision for vertical integration actually is. Sure, sure. So, so it's, it comes to kind of from the acquisition strategy and, and what we did when we raised the capital in 2021 and deployed it throughout 21 and 22, right? So, so the focus there was that we needed to get the best heritage and the best businesses within the subcomponent domain. So we're really proud of kind of how those assets have rolled into our portfolio, what they've enabled from a cash perspective in terms of kind of providing cash stability into the business as well as the, the technological differentiation, differentiation they have. Um, if you think about, you know, what we went and acquired um, and just kind of this is the genesis of that, that front end of being vertically integrated is, is we went and acquired businesses that literally take raw material in the door and, and push space components out the other side. And so the, those businesses are, are, you know, really good um, from a cash perspective, but also good from a technology perspective where they have the leading class technology with respect to space grade solar or the reaction wheels and star trackers. And, and what that enables us is kind of touching on the vertical integration strategy is we can take all of those technologies we can take a lot of the assets that we utilize for launch, things like 3D printer and, and carbon composites, and then we can bundle that together into whole-scale satellite manufacturing, which is what we're doing, right, with, with the Global Star Constellation and, and some other efforts that we're focusing in on. And so as we think about, you know, how that goes from here, I'd say that the Middle River facility is a great example where we can take, you know, 
call it, you know, more attractive locations or more affordable locations, integrate our technology and scale that within kind of the umbrella of the available talent community. And so as we think about, um, you know, not just the Virgin Orbit facility, the old Virgin Orbit facility allowing propulsion technologies, um, as well as our existing HQ allowing, allowing satellite manufacturing technologies. But if you think about kind of the large scale composite of capabilities that are going to be required for satellite architectures of the future, Middle River is going to be a really, really key cog in that as we scale up uh, not just Neutron within that facility, but but utilize, you know, I'll call it remaining capacity to, to um, focus on satellite architectures. Yeah, got it. And um, I think Peter added to to that vertical integration piece, this idea that uh, if companies can create and build their own rocket satellites and other components, as you just described, uh, you would therefore be able to provide direct-to-customer capabilities. And he described it actually as a new kind of SaaS or space as a service. So I think, you know, perhaps we're talking about the longer-term vision here, but even so, I'm, I'm interested to understand how that that might come to fruition. Yeah, it's so it's going to be once we decide kind of the application that we want to pursue and, and keeping in mind that, you know, that decision process is something where we benefit a lot from the second mover dynamic. And, and we continue to benefit from that, right? Where in launch services, if you see, you know, things that work and things that don't work, there are ways to be more capital efficient in that domain. And that's that's definitely something that's informed the neutron process, right? Where if a neutron rocket um, is smaller scale than a Falcon 9 rocket, that's for a reason. We, we, we've seen a lot of the capacity on those satellites typically come in at a, at a lower load, um, on call it a standalone payload basis versus the neutron. And if you think about, you know, how that's going into the space application domain and, and what we think about there, um, there's still a very steep learning curve for applications from space with respect to spectrum. Right. A lot of the constellations that are being scaled today are definitely focused on that broadband spectrum, which is typically uh, it can be challenging for different reasons. And so as we think about, you know, where we go with our application, we're going to be very methodical on, on what types of applications we pursue, the capital that's required to get to them and kind of the margin profile, what we think we can derive from different applications. I'd say that, you know, longer term, that's definitely the vision. Um, but internally, the company is going to, you know, continue focusing on and kind of driving learnings from, I would say, both our competitors and our partners uh, as we as we get to crystallizing, you know, what we think we can achieve over the next, um, you know, we'll call it a couple of years to end of decade. Sure. Okay. Well, let's um, kind of take a step back and... I guess, try and present an overview of the investable opportunity here. Uh, we've got a lot of retail investors listening in, particularly those invested in equities. So with space exploration often feeling, I think for people outside the industry, a pretty distant, abstract concept. Perhaps you can help explain why our listeners should be paying attention to this industry today in 2023. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely one of those things where if you think about, you know, taking a step back from Rocket Lab, if you think about space as a landscape relative to kind of other, other investing categories, um, you know, the higher multiple suggests that it's typically a, a longer duration asset, right? You think about interest rate sensitivity and the like. Um, that has had an impact, I'd say, on space valuations. But if you go back to kind of the thesis of, of the original space economy, it's that as things relative to growth, like, you know, global growth environment and the like taper off, demographics get 
um, more constrained and, and other pieces of the economy become, you know, call it that mid 2010s investment thesis of, of lower for longer. Um, within that kind of environment, space can be a really, really great aperture for driving the, I'd say, structural growth trends, right? So if you think about, um, you know, what that entails, people getting more communications, better intelligence, driving business effects, there's a lot of opportunity here to drive value. And so if you think about kind of that runway, it definitely within the manufacturing domain requires a lot more upfront capital than I think people are, are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But once you have that upfront capital in place, which we've already raised and, and are deploying very efficiently, then you can generate, you know, really healthy margins on the back end of it. Um, and and it, it stems from, you know, not just the kind of value add nature of the work, but the moat that comes with generating these businesses. If you think about kind of the, the margin structure on that domain, um, you know, going back to kind of the, the thesis of, of what you've seen in intelligence and communications, right? Those margins can be pretty healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same can be said with respect to kind of the manufacturing domain, where if you've got the ability to margin stack components and drive reusability in your launch vehicle, and then also generate better asset utilization from the kind of existing inf- investments, right? The things I talked about before, 3D printing, carbon composites, it could be a really nice margin tail for a business as we, as we look out over that kind of investment horizon. You mentioned kind of the the, the wider sort of industry there. Um, And as I mentioned earlier on in the interview, there are other players within this field, SpaceX, for example, but there are other, you know, publicly listed companies in in, in the industry as well. So perhaps you can give us a sense of the overall competitive landscape and to what extent you see that consolidating or not in, in the coming years. How do you expect that that to evolve? I think naturally launch will consolidate. Um, there will always be your quasi government players um, within the kind of, I'd say, heavy and medium launch domain. Um, in terms of the commercially developed players, medium launch will probably further consolidate. And, and it depends on, I'd say, the, the kind of appetite um, for the world's leading billionaires to fund those investments. Um, typically, both SpaceX and Blue are viewed as kind of safe places for, for capital with respect to supply. Um, and then that leaves your quasi-government folks, right? So think of Ion Space um, and ULA as other big pieces in that picture. If you think about kind of the remaining um, set of the chessboard, also including um, obviously the IRSO and, and Japanese Space Agency in that bucket. Um, but if you think about kind of the remaining picture there, there's going to be a good opportunity for commercial folks to consolidate by virtue of them surviving organically. Um, there are other players out there who have limited launch heritage. And I would argue that if they don't have a vehicle that's operational today, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to seize on the you know, looming satellite demand because it's a function like, like space missions, especially in a capital constrained environment, are a function of whether or not you can you know, have mission assurance. And that's kind of the biggest driver of value add for launch. Um, if we step back and think about, you know, the other pieces of the space economy that we're focused on, satellite manufacturing and the like, I'd say that it's it's a little bit more opaque, right? A lot of those larger satellite manufacturing pieces are tucked into either defense primes or commercial aero players. Those will take longer over time to kind of, I'd say, you know, flatten out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's really a kind of a, a, a labor supply story where you have to have the right equity story. You have to have a pure play space growth, uh, you know, call a cash engine to attract this talent and maintain and kind of keep them on board.
Yeah, interesting. Um, and we were talking there about kind of the, the timeframes in which competitors should enter the market and kind of how that would affect their overall chances. But if we look at it from the investor's perspective, what kind of time frame should people be thinking about when they're considering an investment into space? Now, I imagine this is going to differ from application or product to product, for example, but perhaps you can give us an overall sense of the time horizon people should be considering it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say taking a step back, typically the way that investors have talked about it from a space investment standpoint um, is that they point to the space economy of 2040, right? And you, and you discount that back. And that's kind of the, the, the you know cheap and easy math to think about. I would say that if, if you think about, you know, taking, call it that app, that kind of um, perspective off the table, and you think about the growth visibility within the business, stuff that's government pure play will have a really, really healthy visibility with respect to government budgets. Um, and it's just a function of looking at what is the most tied to, you know, things like DOD space, NASA, um, picking apart what's sustainable from a cash perspective, and then focusing on how those growth levers uh, kind of and interact with the scaling exercise of those companies. So, so taking that apart, um, you know, can typically be space budgets can typically be paid out over you know, government budgets typically paid out over three to five years. Space budgets can typically paid out over five to seven years. And so if you draw a point between that visibility to the scaling models uh, of these companies, that can help you triangulate towards it. Although I'd note that um, it definitely is a long term kind of play, right, where it's a structural grower. You really are playing for something that can become almost commercial arrow like over a 10 to 20 year period. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Well, um, I think we'll dig into a few of those topics in greater detail in a moment, but let's kind of circle back and, and cover some of your background and kind of experiences today. Cause I think it's interesting to introduce you to the listeners. So, um, how has your work, uh, on top ranked aerospace and defense teams at both Barclays and city informed your approach as the investor relations lead at rocket lab? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So the, Worked for some really, really smart folks um, at Citibank. It was you know Jason Gersky and John Revive who have a really strong fundamental understanding of call it government acquisition policies. And and you go back to kind of the 2017, 2016 era, right? In a constrained budget environment, and I'd say in a what was viewed at the time as a less elevated national security environment, the focus on government acquisition is really kind of centered around what's called better buying power. And it's the sense that they can alter the kind of contract structures to drive more fixed priced work to the industry um, and by therefore kind of generate better price outcomes. And so, you know, going back to that city team, a lot of the work was centered around that government acquisition work and how both the defense primes and the government services fit into that matrix. And it's, you know, just it really gives you a kind of good sense of what the margin profile and what the cash profile can be of, of these businesses, where if you increase the risk on the business and the business delivers to that outcome by virtue of fixed price exposure, capital exp intensity and R&D intensity, that can all deliver better cash in the back end, um, but not without risk, right? And then if you think about kind of the Barclays experience, um, definitely, and that was kind of David Strauss's team, was definitely steeped in, in monitoring data on a weekly basis. So commercial aero data that goes to 
structural shipments of 787 pieces, commercial aerospace, airport activity in places like China, right? And if you intersect those kind of two theses um, and, and blend those together, it delivers a really strong kind of platform to think about investing um, and definitely something that, you know, we'll continue to inject at Rocket Lab, hopefully, where if we can kind of explain, I'd say, the, the space opportunity within those matrices, that can be a really, really kind of easy to understand story where you have a commercially developed portfolio, right, with 100% fixed price exposure, R&D in a steady state basis, you know, called mid-teens, that can all deliver the kind of outcomes that government is looking for. And then if you think about kind of a data monitoring basis, you can be pretty tactical around kind of space data sets in the sense that it's all readily available, right? Launches, orders, government budgets, those all flow together. And then say that the, the other kind of piece of that is that within the commercial domain, you can track, you know, research and development dollars and CapEx dollars from the largest tech players. And that can kind of help you triangulate on where to think about the space, uh, space thesis. Yeah. Okay. Really interesting. Yeah. I can see how that will start to present a really comparing, uh, compelling narrative. Um, so I think then I'm interested to understand again, related to your background, like how you've, uh, experienced that sort of transition from analyst work into IR, like what's, what's been the biggest challenge since you've done that and, and how have you coped with that evolution? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the biggest learning curve has been going from the analyst seat to the investor relations seat while also balancing the corporate development seat, right? So, so um, both of those teams have given a really kind of good fundamental understanding of how to evaluate I'd say the public equity side, um, but private equity side is, is definitely a different domain where valuations and bidding discipline and bidding tactics all really matter. And I think that that's been a, you know, a great learning curve for the company where you know maintaining price discipline on a kind of key assets can help us drive better outcomes over the longer term by virtue of either those assets coming back to market or utilizing what I'd say is um, that bid discipline and triangulating, triangulating that versus, you know, a cost to develop organically, right? There, there are pieces of kind of the space tech portfolio that because they get heritage um, will always kind of generate a healthy bid ask. Um, but if you think about and you take a step back of, you know, what is this tech worth for Rocket Lab? Um, that's kind of been a really steep learning curve. And it's been a great one where um, folks in the team, you know, have done this, right? Um, the CFO and, and called Adam Spice and, and the finance team have done, you know, tens of deals across their Broadcom experience. So having that, you know, kind of mentorship has been really helpful for the company and, and really helpful for kind of um, helping me kind of grow into that, that corporate development seat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we try and uh, move back to Rocket Lab's development over the years as well, I think it's interesting to to highlight that back in um, August 2020, the company listed on the NASDAQ through a SPAC merger. So, you know, and we'll go into the financials later in greater detail, but what, what phase of growth are Rocket Lab in today? Talk to us more generally about where you are on, on your ultimate kind of timeline. Yeah, you know, it's, listen, it's still... I don't want to call it early stage, right? Because we've, we've scaled so much, but I'd say that it's definitely still early stage, right? There, there is a very, very large wallet of, I'd say, addressable government opportunities between commercial and there's between civil and defense. Um, and there's also going to be a good opportunity for within those wallets 
to take share where because we're commercially developed, because we take on fixed price exposure contracts, we can come in and, and kind of, you know, say add pressure to the pre-existing base. And if you kind of tie, you know, the, the genesis of that stage, it all comes together to how you build the talent bench. And a lot of the people that have come to this company have definitely been, you know, more recent ads. And so as people mature in the seat and you get a better kind of sense of team and a sense of capability and, and what's, you know, actionable, um, that can all turn into a really good growth engine over time. And then as you get that talent scaled and embedded, if you think about kind of, you know, going from design to operation, utilizing a lot of the, let's say, smart manufacturing approaches that are being proliferated, 3D printing, carbon composites and the like, that can help you scale the business without adding, you know, significant amounts of headcount to it. Um, and... Let's get into kind of the, the specific products that Rocket Lab are responsible for. And also, I guess, in doing that, we'll talk about the tailwinds for the business as well. Um, I'm talking to you at an interesting time with Rocket Lab having kind of started to gear back up for their next flight of your uh, Electron small uh, satellite launch, ve- uh, launch vehicle. Um, the Electron rocket was was grounded, I think, since September. Um, and you can give me the detail on this when there was a malfunction that led to a loss of mission payload during a launch. So perhaps you can explain firstly what happened there, but then talk to us about how Rocket Lab have overcome that issue. Yeah, so I definitely point you to our three Q slides where um, both Pete, Adam and, and the corporate communications team and our launch team, you know, spent a lot of time kind of making sure that we put rocket science into a, you know, kind of digestible amount of material. Um, so I definitely say that, you know, look at those anomaly slides, look at what we're explaining there with respect to kind of the rarity of those events combining to, to occur, like what happened and, and how that played out, um, as well as the fix to that. So, so that's something that, um, you know, things like electrical engineering and the like can be very tricky. Um, but we feel really good about kind of getting that fix behind us um, and, and definitely point to electron success over the last, um, you know, kind of series of launches, right? Almost 20, about 20 successful launches um, from this anomaly to the one before that. And so we definitely view electron as a hardened platform. Um, and if you think about kind of growing from here and getting that, that vehicle back into place, it's, it's applying that fix, which we think we've done, um, and getting it scaled into the, the manifest opportunity that we detailed. Um, there's a lot of pent up demand in that space. And I'd say that, um, as you think about the typical problems that plagued 2023's dynamics, right? Customer timing and the like, we're confident that, that those risks will be better mitigated in 24 by virtue of, you know, kind of the, the stack of manifest launches or the, the, the manifest launches that we, we need to action on. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll include those slides in the episode description for anyone that wants further detail. But um, yeah, to talk to the resilience of the uh, the product you described, I, I read that um, you've got a fully booked schedule for electron missions for next year. So how many launches are you currently expecting and how does that compare to, to this year? Yeah, so I'd say that um, the manifest is really the kind of um, point that we articulated. You know, we had previously been saying 20 launches in 24. I'd say that the, the manifest suggesting around 22, um, it's going to be a, a tough ramp to execute on that. But if you think about, you know, kind of what that manifest suggests, it's the capability to do 22 missions. Um, although I'd say that launches continues to be a lumpy business, right? Yeah. So I'd say that, you know, articulating you know, hard concrete targets for 24 launches um, is easier said than done. But at the same time, I think the focus should be for investors 
like that's that's a key point, right? And executing that and generating margin and cash off that is a, is a key point of the thesis. Um, but I'd say stay tuned to kind of you know what our space systems business can do, right? We're, we're, we've done a lot to drive um, the integration of that business and, and continue to invest organically. And so if we think about those organic investments, um, those should continue to yield healthy effects for the rest of the business, such that that launch will um, you know continue to be a, a great element of the story. Uh, but launch is as we always articulated is are the keys to space um and so if we think about kind of executing that manifest that's that's a key thing to keep in mind as well yeah fantastic and we'll dig into those space systems in a second um but just to finish off the conversation on electron i just want to get more detail on on kind of what that is as a product you mentioned obviously it's it's that small satellite focus but talk to us why you and why the company more generally decided to focus on small satellites originally yeah, I think it's, it's a compelling market, right? And it's something that um, we've definitely seen crystallize with respect to that manifest um, and, and should continue to get better where it's not just small satellite demand that continues to be robust, um, especially in light of, you know, kind of feedback that we get that the transporter missions are sold out for the next two years. Um, and so if we think about, you know, kind of the other pieces of that beyond commercial satellites, the hypersonics market um, should be a really healthy growth adjacency where we can utilize that first stage electron and do a suborbital flight that's you know well north of that 300 kg capacity um, and do it at a, at a price that's a lot more uh, competitive than you know call it like a bunch of defense primes and defense services names going out into the field and, and launching a rocket or building a, a wind tunnel. Yeah, fantastic. And on that um, kind of hypersonic technology opportunity, talk to us about the the overall investment opportunity there and, and kind of how Rocket Lab sees it. Do you have a number that you can quantify the opportunity there? Is there a total addressable market that you kind of look at? Sure, sure. So if you go back, I think it was the 2Q23 slides that we put out about a billion dollar TAM for hypersonics. The the driving forces of that were, you know, call it five to seven hundred million dollars of, of government budgets that, you know, we have line of sight on where it's DOD testing and, and NASA hypersonics testing. And those are two line items that you can kind of pull up in the government budget profile to, to really, um, you know, kind of nail down that stuff. I'd say that um, if you assume there's an international component to that as well, um, that can be, you know, call it the other third of that third to half of that um, government spend profile. And I'd say that that should serve as a pretty healthy base for kind of where the market goes over time, where it's pretty clear that these capabilities are going to be needed over the next decade especially, you know, kind of the immediacy of the next three to five years. Um, and so within that kind of construct, you know, we feel pretty good about our ability to continue ramping Electron into those opportunities that, um, you know, if you think about the opportunity set, you know, can be pretty healthy over here in the next three to five years. Yeah, fantastic. And I want to pick uh, pick up on that point I mentioned, I think, towards the start of the interview, um, this idea of reusability and I guess how that offers sustainability as well. Um, I think Rocket Lab briefly one of your uh, Rutherford rocket engines back in August. So how significant a milestone was that in the reusability program? And when will Rocket Lab be doing this at scale? Yeah. Yeah. So listen, like design reusability and operationalizing reusability are two definitely different things where we've proven out the design reusability. And I'd say that we've, we've proven out operationalizing the reusability of Electron where because we've shown that we can reuse an engine and take costs out of the vehicle, that's something that we're really bullish on. Yeah. And think that that can be a continue to be a good margin lever over time. 
if you go back to the three Q slides, right in that manifest slide deck, you can actually break out, you know, kind of what the reusability uh, mission capability looks like in that manifest. Although I'd note that um, it's definitely something that still is maturing, right? And so if we think about the trade on reusability for Electron, that will continue to be a function of best margin, where if we think we can generate better margins in cash by doing a non-reusable launch versus a reusable launch, that, that's something that we'll definitely do. Um, and then the, the Neutron domain, you know, that's a, the rocket that people forget. Like Falcon 9 was not designed to be reused from day one, right? That was a single-use rocket that they were able to engineer into a partially reusable rocket, whereas Neutron is designed to be reusable from the ground up. And there's a lot of kind of key engineering parameters that we place on the team with respect to turnaround time and kind of engine architectures and the like that are designed to make Neutron uh, a much more reusable rocket. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, let's dig into financial performance and Q3 results then. Um, I think we set the context reasonably well. Uh, revenue grew 7% year over year in Q3 to $67.6 million, I believe. So how did that compare year over year and perhaps versus the previous quarter? And perhaps you can talk to us as well about how that stacked up against analyst expectations as well. Yeah, I'd say that if, if you took, you know, this time last year, um, the growth profile of the company is definitely from a kind of total dollars perspective is, is continues to be really healthy. Yeah. Um, and I'd say that the, the, the analyst expectations, the analysts have done a great job. Um, I'd say getting kind of the pieces that we've laid out in the public domain, you know, kind of plugged into their models. I'd say that, um, you know, there's still relative to kind of street expectations. There's still some work to be done. And so if you think about, you know, kind of what that work entails, um, that's going to be continual aligning the street to kind of the launch cadence, right, that we've laid out and, and kind of the pricing dynamics as well as the satellite manufacturing domain. And that, and that was kind of the genesis of, um, you know, front running a bit going out into kind of um, the Q1 2024 guidance is, is kind of, you know, showcasing that, hey, like this satellite manufacturing um contract is real with, with respect to the kind of global star domain. And, and it should be um, a good basis for the company as we think about 2024 growth. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I wanted to return to space systems. And I think we can do that now because that unit brought in the majority of, of revenue during Q3. I think it was $46.3 million uh, that quarter, a 17% increase year over year. So uh, perhaps we can use this juncture to briefly explain what that unit is specifically responsible for and why you're so bullish and excited about that, that area in particular. Sure, sure. So if you think about kind of the, the bulk of the revenue, as we think about you know, what the, the growth entails, right? That 1Q24 guide of 100 million um, for the total business, right? And then you think about, um, you know, what that entails with respect to kind of the, the space systems domain is that the bulk of the, the Global Star contract will be the basis of that work in 2024, right? It's about 140, it's $143 million satellite manufacturing contract. I'd say that the, the biggest punk chunk of that will be done in 2024. Um, and I'd say that, you know, kind of where we get excited on the business going forward is, is really around the stability that's provided by the merchant component market, where we can sell solar, we can sell reaction wheels, we can sell software into, you know, what's been kind of termed as competitimates or, or co-opetition in defense land, where it's competitors and um, customers that kind of combine. I say that um, with respect to kind of the, the rest of the 
business and how we think about that, Global Star, you know, should serve as kind of foundational piece where if we can provide the best cost and schedule um, and we have the talent that, you know, we think we do with respect to kind of the satellite design and satellite operations, then, you know, we should be able to lean into, you know, doing more stuff like Global Star over time. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, well, with that in mind, then let's look ahead to Key Fuel and future guidance. Rocket Lab have guided for revenue between sixty-five million and sixty-nine million dollars. Uh, where will the majority of that revenue come from? Perhaps you can talk to how you expect the revenue split and mix across your various units to evolve into twenty twenty-four. Yeah, yeah. So twenty in the kind of we we'll call it the four Q twenty-three timeframe. Um, the guidance that we've kind of put out is two launches, right? Um, and then the, the remaining of that being the, the space system side. And I'd say that, you know, call it half of that space system side, maybe a third, third of that will be kind of that global storm um, driver. Um, and then going back again to 24, it's going to be picking up that global star piece. Um, you know, the kind of key point that we want to make sure that we explain to investors is that the, the global star contract has passed a lot of its critical design reviews. And so now it's kind of just into um, acquisition integration and test. And so once once we kind of get that schedule rolling, you know, hopefully a lot of the kind of the key risks are behind us where um, the stability of that global start business will be a great piece of our 2024 revenue. Yeah, fantastic. You know, we've, we've uh, had conversations like this with uh, the CFOs at other publicly listed companies for not within the space space, but you know, within similarly sort of speculative longer term investment uh, industries. Um, and one of those was uh, in the AI insurance industry for a company called Lemonade. We spoke to ChargePoint in the EV uh, market, a guy called Rex Jackson. Um, and they pointed to kind of North Star metrics, you know, those key fundamental metrics that investors should look out for in companies' earnings announcement. Uh, announcements, and I wonder whether maybe there's not one, maybe there's a, a handful that you could highlight for investors listening in, so they can watch out for those in upcoming earnings announcements. Yeah, so I mean, listen, the, the key lever to kind of um, profitability it continues to be the neutron investment, right? We've been pretty clear on that. That um, neutron is going to be the, the big consumer of capital over the next, we'll call it, um, you know, twelve to eighteen months. Right where it's it's getting the neutron to the pad by end of twenty four, and, and it's kind of scaling that that business. Um, I'd say that you know if you think about it from a longer term perspective, quantitatively, there's a good chart you can kind of put together, and I, and I you know kind of recommend investors to think about this: is um, what does free cash flow and EBITDA margin compare relative to you know call it fixed price exposure and commercial R and D? Where if you go back to our 2022 investor day slides, you know, that 45 to 50% non-gap gross margin target, that's kind of, you know, where we want to get to the business to over time with, you know, keeping a high rate of R&D spend that can continue to deliver growth. You know, this is definitely something where the genesis of its team comes from a kind of semi-tech background. And we know that especially in a kind of constrained government budget environment that the maintaining high spend and maintaining high innovation rates can, can help you deliver better effects over time. Um, and then if you think about kind of, you know, once you've got neutron scaled and once you've got a lot of those kind of metrics to more steady state, then that can be a good, you know, a good outcome where because you're commercially developed, because you picked the right adjacencies, 
you can utilize those technologies to kind of grow into the commercial market and deliver those price savings back to government customers. Yeah, great. Okay, I think that's a really helpful guide. Um, and just more generally, then the the question of profitability will be one that's on all kind of listeners and investors' minds more generally. Talk to us about where you are on the, on that that journey and kind of more generally that profitability question. Yeah, I'd say the key thing to kind of keep in mind as you think about Neutron investment is that a lot of the operationalization of the launch business has been done, right? So carbon composites, 3D printing, these are all things that we know how to do um, with respect to kind of the electron platform and the guidance and navigation systems, the ground control elements, you know, having a functional launch team. Those are something that we, you know, we're all, you know, kind of we've matured at this point. And so as we think about integrating the Neutron you know, Pete's always said that the, the 20th or the 40th rocket is harder than the first rocket. And the, the, the thesis of that is that, you know, you can get a bunch of really great rocket scientists around and burn cash, you know, all you want to generate a usable vehicle. But if you can't get the techs to kind of, um, you know, build and operate it uh, at, a, at a kind of, we'll call it efficient rate or manufacturing rate, then that's usually the, the big hurdle. Um for the launch business, and we've proven that we can do we can do that. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, based on on those last few answers, then I want to leave uh, investors with some key takeaways. Um, I think it would be useful at this point to just highlight to to investors how they should think about space as a new sort of emerging asset class, uh, if we can describe it like that, um, and how it should fit within a retail investor's portfolio. Have you got any sort of best practice in mind for people to think about when addressing that question? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, how it fits into people's portfolios and how to think about um, space investing is definitely something for kind of more of the analysts. Um, you know, what I would argue is from a picking a company perspective, um, you definitely want to make sure you vet the right teams. Um, this is not something where you can kind of scatter and diversify across the portfolio and assume that everyone's going to win. Um, I'd say that the the driving force of space really is the people. Um capital intensity, like there's no, there's not a lot of patenting you can do it. It typically is trade secrets. Um, and so the, you know, kind of the bigger moats around, especially the launch industry is, is capital intensity um, and kind of having the launch infrastructure built out and scaled and, and having that um, operation system in place. But I'd also say that it's maintaining the right team. And so if you think about kind of, it goes back to that comment I made before where, you want to make sure that you have both the engineering and financial discipline to, to drive best outcomes for investors. And so as you think about, um, you know, kind of how that shakes out and how that, how that domain is going to shake out, like it's really probably only going to be a few end to end space companies that survive this. And, and that's kind of been our thesis where we've gone out, we acquired cheap key choke points in the satellite manufacturing supply chain. And we, we kind of utilize them to drive either better price outcomes on our satellite manufacturing domain or sell them back into the, the merchant market at, at our minimum space systems, you know, kind of corporate tar- target margin, which is typically in that 30 to 40% non-gap gross margin. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was going to ask you about sort of key risks that investors should face. I don't know whether based on your answer, like overly diversifying in this area or this this, this sector would be would be an issue given that ultimately, as you say, there will only be a few key players that win out. But yeah, to, perhaps you can address that that question more generally. What are the key risks that investors face? 
Yeah, I think I think we've shown them where launch can be very risky, right? And and having that in your portfolio as a standalone company can be a really really challenging model. Where if you're grounded for months at a time, like the burn rates could be scary for certain. Um, you know, fortunately, we, we've gone out and been very methodical on acquiring cash generative space systems acquisitions, and I think more to come within that domain. Where if we can continue to build the cash base of the business on satellite manufacturing work. That can be a really, really healthy kind of avenue to continue scaling the launch work. And then once you have both of those businesses at scale, um, they can combine to provide some really, really healthy effects where if you own the launch vehicle and you own the satellite manufacturing and not just the satellite manufacturing, but the subscale manufacturing, right? That, that really kind of start of the materials all the way to the finished product that can help you deliver, you know, much better price and schedule outcomes. And so once we kind of get those those pieces mature, I think Elon's done a great job of showing from a financial perspective and probably more the you know, the SpaceX team and Gwen Shotwell and the like that um, having a full scale end to end launch and satellite business can deliver a really, really kind of healthy margin stack. And, and that's kind of where we're going to over time. Yeah, fantastic. Well, a final question from me then. We we usually finish by asking our guests for for their next big idea. So perhaps there's an exciting sort of application uh, in regards to how Rocket Lab plan to use this technology, one that maybe isn't necessarily that well known within the mainstream that you can talk to here. Yeah, I'd say that, you know, the, the most exciting thing in our minds is is really kind of taking the neutron vehicle and scaling it, right? That the design of the vehicle is going to be a really, really healthy competitive piece in that medium class market where because neutrons designed to be reusable from the ground up because it has carbon composites and a methyl ox engine that um, along with a really good you know ballistic coefficient can hopefully be a really efficient vehicle from a capital standpoint i'd say that um, you know where we else we get excited is, is around that application right so we've, we've been pretty clear that we're continuing to evaluate the market and, and we think that um, you know, once we kind of make our decision on what spectrum we think is the best or what application we think is the best, utilizing, um, you know, hot supply chains from a satellite manufacturing perspective and then leaning into that application can be a really nice kind of strategic handoff. Although I'd say that there's, there's more to come in that domain. Mm, yeah, really interesting. I think a fascinating insight to end on. Uh, that, that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Colin. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, take care, man. Bye-bye.